You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What are the benefits of moderate weight loss for patients living with type 2 diabetes? Joining us to discuss weight loss as a primary goal of therapy for overweight patients with type 2 diabetes is the director of the Nutrition and Metabolic Research Center and director of the Center for Weight Management at Scripps Clinic in La Jolla, California, Dr. Ken Fujioka. Dr. Fujioka, welcome to ReachMD. Oh, real pleasure to be here. Well, Ken, uh, I know that you're on the, you have been on the forefront of uh, obesity therapies for so many years in San Diego. Tell our listeners, what role does weight loss play in the etiology uh, of type 2 diabetes? Do people just eat themselves into getting type 2 diabetes? Is it more complicated than that? Uh, a little more complicated. It, it's real clear, though, that if you eat enough and you have the genetics to get heavy and to move into insulin resistance and eventually diabetes, yeah, you're going to get diabetes. But it's a mixed bag because there are some people who really can eat whatever they want and they actually don't move in that direction. And then other folks who eat just a little more than they need and they quickly move into type 2 diabetes. So it's our parents' fault. That's right. Pick your parents well. Now, one of the, the topic of today's show is moderate weight loss, underscore moderate. Well, tell us the benefits of moderate weight loss, but before you do that, uh, define what you mean when you say moderate. Moderate to me is somewhere around 5 to at most 10% weight loss. So we're talking for many patients just 10 to 20 pounds of weight loss is enough to make a huge improvement in your diabetic parameters. But the big change you see is obviously blood sugar will come down very nicely, but there's all the other things that happen. And if you follow these folks with the weight loss out in time, not only does the blood sugar improve, but also things like cholesterol, particularly HDL increasing and triglycerides coming down, blood pressure obviously improves uh, A1C. And then also the biggest thing now we're noticing is the inflammatory factors. So as you know, diabetics die of coronary artery disease, we think partly due to inflammation versus cholesterol. And so you lower those inflammatory factors. Now, so there, so there really is data uh, to substantiate the fact that losing as little weight as 5 to 10 pounds could make beneficial effects. How about long-term outcomes, you know, reduction in cardiovascular disease or uh, diabetic complications? That's been much harder to show. It has been shown with a large amounts of weight loss. Actually, I shouldn't say large, but say somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15% weight loss, which is now getting up there more weight loss. Although even then, 10% is, and 15% is not that big, but that has been shown in long-term trials. Well, tell us what happens when uh, an overweight person with type 2 diabetes comes into your research unit. Tell us some of the, the successful therapeutic interventions that you do at your place and even some of the experimental approaches as well. Okay. I, I think one of the first things we do is look at the medications that somebody's on. And unfortunately, there are a whole host of medications that are known to drive up weight. And they're important medications. A good example is a beta blocker. A simple beta blocker will unfortunately, cut your ability to burn 100 to as many as 200 calories a day. So you're just sitting there, and you're on a beta blocker for your blood pressure 
and all of a sudden you're getting an extra 100 to 200 calories. So that's a tough one. So if they can, say they're not a known coronary artery disease patient, we'll switch them from a beta blocker, say, to an ACE and a diuretic or something different Mm -hmm. so that we can get better chance at weight loss and also they're not gaining. And then, as you know, there's many, unfortunately, diabetic medications that are known to drive up weight. So some of the old sulfonylureas really, to me, should not be second or third line drugs, but really more like fourth and fifth. They should be way down there on the oral medications because we have a whole host of newer medications that really do just the opposite. And we've known for a long time that diabetics, unfortunately, one, gain weight much easier than everyone else, but two, they also have a harder time losing weight. So by replacing, say, something like a GLP-1 or using a DPP-4 inhibitor, you all of a sudden help somebody in losing weight, whereas before they were on a diabetic drug that caused weight gain. List specifically the oral medications that lead to weight gain, and and how much would you expect based on the clinical studies? If you look at the clinical trials, uh, sulfonylureas would be number one right at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, the glitazones, TZDs, that class of medications also put on weight. Now, this is a tough call because we think that the weight gain is good in the sense that the weight is peripheral fat versus central fat. So if you can somehow switch that around, then you might get improvement. But unfortunately, ever since the uh, two really major studies came out, the Accord and the Advance trial, they showed that maybe tight control isn't as good and that maybe one of the factors for this tight control was weight gain. Uh, Another one for the type 2 would be insulin. Insulin in the type 2 clearly causes weight gain when you start using insulin. So those would be probably the top three. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Ken Fujioka. We are discussing the benefits of moderate weight loss in patients with type 2 diabetes. You know, one thing that was quite interesting, Ken, uh, when we talked about the questions that we we're going to discuss, how does simply having the intent to lose weight improve outcomes in people with diabetes? Once somebody is aware that they want to do something about their weight, they actually do better. And there's a couple reasons for that, but one is just being aware of your food intake because there's so many times we get mindless calories in every day that it's, it's rather sad. And a good example is anybody who works in a hospital or who works in doctor's office, all the time patients, meaning good, will bring in foods that really we shouldn't be having, chocolates, pastries, things like that. And so if you're aware of that, then maybe you'll walk by that you know, box of donuts, or maybe you'll skip that bagel, or you won't have that chocolate. So just being aware is a big one. And we know that if you're so intent that you actually write down what you eat, by the end of the day, you're going to look at that and you go, oh, you know what, I can't be eating dessert because I wasn't eating very good today. So being aware is, is very helpful. The other one is whatever the intent is. So say my intent is, and this sounds corny, is to actually have breakfast every morning because we do know that people who eat breakfast for some reason have lower weight. As a matter of fact, a much lower weight. So your intent will be, okay, I'm going to have a healthy breakfast and then start my day and hopefully I'll do better. I know that sleep apnea is highly associated with diabetes. It's associated with insulin resistance. Let's talk a little bit about sleep apnea. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And and the studies are actually quite uh, fascinating. And NIH is really interested in this question of how does it relate. But just as you said, one of the biggest factors is for whatever reason, when you sleep deprive someone, they're going to get insulin resistance. So as you know, as you get more insulin in your body, you'll then want to store more visceral fat. So not a good thing. 
The other thing we've noticed, and, and this one I always thought was a wise tale, but they used to say, don't eat late at night. Well, late at night is, is a subjective term, but in essence, there are studies now showing that if you do, in fact, eat past 11 o'clock at night, if you're somebody who wakes up at night or eats a snack at midnight, you actually are going to gain weight. So uh, that's a very it's a truism, and we think it's because you start to play with the normal hormones that you secrete at night. One of the hormones we secrete at night that actually helps us lose weight is leptin. So leptin is that hormone that comes from the fat cells. Fat cells are trying to tell the brain, hey, I got plenty of fat around. I don't need any more calories, and it gets up to the brain and lets you burn calories at night, hence why you always weigh a little bit less in the morning. And so those hormones and other hormones as well, cortisol, possibly some other ones, get messed up at night when you're not sleeping. So that sleep is very, very important. You know what? And I have found from another personal experience that when I eat late at night, which I used to do, then you're not hungry in the morning, so you skip breakfast, and then you overeat at lunch. So it really starts a whole catch-22 situation. Now, for our listeners, um, you know, we're always looking for weight loss agents. Of the very few that are approved by the FDA, give us a rundown on how you think about them, like Meridia, the fat blockers, uh, you know, the, the you know, cybutramine type of drugs. Okay. Yeah, they've definitely been in the news lately. And I'll start off with cybutramine just because it has been in the news so much. It is undergoing another review right now. So cybutramine is a medication that's fairly similar to our depression medication. So it's an uptake inhibitor of serotonin and norepinephrine. So now you get slightly elevated levels of norepinephrine in the brain. Well, that actually can translate into a slightly elevated blood pressure. By slightly, I'm saying two to four millimeters of mercury, which is significant. So in Europe, they're looking at uh, a trial called the SCOUT trial that looked at, do you, in fact, not live as long if you take one of these medications? But it turns out it's very, very complicated. And so they found, and again, this is very preliminary data, but when you look at uh, the known heart patient and you give them this medication and they have diabetes, that group does not do well. So it's very clear to us, don't use your standard appetite suppressant, such as cybutramine and probably phenamine as well, in a known heart patient uh, who, who also has diabetes. That combination is particularly bad. Mm -hmm. What about those fat blockers? They're fortunately very safe. They, they don't do a heck of a lot. In other words, they're weak weight loss agents, but they will give you weight loss. They'll give you, you know, 2 3%. They're over-the-counter now, so they're very reasonable to use in a diabetic because they're so safe. Well, what, what type of treatment guidelines are needed uh, for intervention in obesity and type 2 diabetes, something that could really help the primary care doctor out there in the trenches? I, I think the, the first thing is, and it's, you know, we're always saying an ounce of prevention is worth quite a bit, but the minute you see somebody with pre-diabetes, in other words, their blood sugar is between 100 and 125, really think about being aggressive on their weight. You know, get them to go to Weight Watchers or get them to go to wherever they're comfortable, even if you just send them to a dietitian. And again, as we talked about earlier, you get the intent and the awareness, they're actually going to lose some weight. It may not be a lot, but it'll be enough to keep them from moving on. Two, um, when, when you're looking at then say now they're diabetic and you've got to get your weight down, don't be afraid to use weight loss medications. Now, when I say that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this here. My most common medication I use for weight loss is actually bupropion or Welbutrin, which is actually an antidepressant. The reason why I say that is when we look at the most common comorbidity in patients with uh, obesity and diabetes, it's actually depression. 
is the next third in line there. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is you can get two birds with one stone. They lose just as much weight without everything else. It's generic, and the, the data is coming back showing that it's actually very safe in that population. So things like that I will do. Um, next off is, you know, dietitians, they have very good studies showing that if you just send them to your CDE or your dietitian for just three visits over a year, they will lose about 5 to 10% more than the other group who you do nothing with. I would like to thank our guest, uh, Director of the Nutrition and Metabolic Research Center at the Scripps Clinic in La Jolla, California, Dr. Ken Fujioka. Dr. Fujioka, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. A real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.